everybody. Welcome, welcome here to show 106 on Crypto Voices. Matthew here from Eastern Europe, joined uh, by my buddy Alec Harris today from Halo Privacy. Alec, what's going on, man? Hey, Matthew. How are you, my friend? Doing well, man. Doing well. Summer has uh, has fully, fully kicked in here in Eastern Europe, which is fantastic. Um, I was telling you a little bit pre-show. It's 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 hot, and we don't have air conditioning here in too many places. But I can't I can't really complain based on the rest of the year uh, <laughs> not being so. So so it's all good. Sun is shining, and uh, and feeling very good about that. How you doing? Uh, good. Uh, no air conditioning. Sounds like you live in Texas. But uh, so speaking of, since you brought it up there, I saw an article this morning on how uh, in Texas they were giving away free um, Nest thermostats if you would join into a plan where you basically get a $30 credit and a free Nest thermostat. And the fine print is that whenever the Texas, I forget the acronym, but they have their kind of uh, power board that manages power distribution. and so they can then remotely adjust your thermostat to adjust for, you know, peak usage on the grid. Mm. And so a bunch of people didn't really read the fine print and they just thought, oh, I'll get a free thermostat in 30 bucks. Uh, and then they found out that the grid was capping their, their usage, which meant that they couldn't adjust their thermostat below 78 degrees during, you know, what it sounds like has been an epic uh, heat wave going on. So wow. that's what you get for inviting free tech into your home, I guess. Yep, smart houses, as they call them uh, over here. I presume they call them over there as well, but that's just mm-hmm. that's the funny lexicon. It's like smart house, smart house. Everybody's loving to install that, and I'm just like, not not for me. But I don't know. That's right up your wheelhouse. I mean, is that? Uh, yeah, I'll probably say this once a month. But if the product is free, then you're the product, right? So uh, in this case, I mean, I'm sure that that thermostat is collecting data as well, but it's a little worse uh, in that, you know, allowing the government to control the temperature in your home. That that does not sound desirable to me. And $30 is really kind of low compensation for that privilege. And just right in the middle of summer, it's a bit devious for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, okay, so uh, if you're an administrator of that grid, you would say, is it better to have your temperature set at 78 degrees or to have no power? Um, but the privacy nerd in me just doesn't like the concept. It's funny too, because with COVID, uh, everybody's trying to move out of, you know, everybody's trying to move out of cities. Um, well, not everybody, I guess I'm speaking partly in, uh, my circle of, uh, friends and whatnot, but it seems like a lot of people are moving out of cities and trying to, uh, do a lot of building. I know here in the Baltics, like you can't even do a new project this year. Like you got to start next year to build. Uh, which is an interesting boon for the construction industry, which is already probably in a bubble. Um, but yeah, regarding this whole smart house stuff, like when I have to actually, like I've, I've rented my whole life pretty much, had no problem with it. But um, when it does come time for me to, you know, as we've talked about before, you, you, know, you, you have a company basically uh, managing your personal abode. But when I have to uh, <laughs> put all this information on, personally to all these third parties, they're going to have so much access to the actual usage of your house for what I don't know is maybe a, a couple percentage points of savings versus like older legacy systems. I don't know. I could be exaggerating there. It could be maybe. Mm, I mean, it's always convenience, right? So, oh, you want to unlock your door remotely so you can let the cleaners in while you're at the office, put a smart lock in, right? But where was that manufactured? How was the firmware updated? Probably never. 
right? And what are the easy exploits that we don't know about that, you know, any kind of two-bit hacker driving around the neighborhood can push, you know, via Bluetooth to unlock that lock? Uh, and so, yeah. and I'm not anti-convenience, right? But I see convenience as not always desirable if it's a trade-off. Yep. Uh, and usually when we digitize or, or productize things in our home that used to be analog, it comes with some of those trade-offs. Uh, and, you know, we talked about it with, with Keto a couple episodes ago. There's ways to mitigate that, but they're difficult. And you have to know how to set up your own home network and work in the private IP space of that network uh, and make sure that things that should, you know, stay internal, stay internal and don't talk external. And then you have to update things yourself. Uh, and so it's not, I think, a very small percentage of the population will bother with that. Are you using any smart products? Yeah, so... We somewhat lucked into the place, the house we live in. We were able to put an offer in as it was being built, uh, and so we had some say over because you know the builders these days just assume that the smarter and, and you know more online the home is, the more desirable it is. And that's actually, you know, if you look at the yeah houses that sell, that's true. Um, but so we were able to come in and say you know, things like we don't need a TV in our refrigerator that, you know, talks to Instacart. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, there are certain things that the whole house is not analog, right? Uh, We live in modernity, but uh, it is managed and purposeful. So there are some home defense elements that, you know, I can remote into and manage. Uh, But there's not uh, probably nearly as much smart uh, activity in the home is the house to the right or left of me, if I had to guess. Well, always something to think about, for sure. But um, but you mentioned building lumbers down. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, it kind of. I, I'm pretty sure I saw the chart earlier this week, and it you know fell off of a little like blow off top. But lumber, I guess that's mostly like U.S. based lumber. I know there are these sort of interesting commodity quotes you can get on Bloomberg or whatever. But uh, yeah, here it's it's definitely not down. You can't even find lumber. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, my, my neighbor's trying to build a, a deck and he can't even find it. Um, <laughs> it's not even about price, it's about availability. That that's, that's probably sounds crazy to Americans, but that's, that's how it is. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think that we saw on, on our Twitter feeds for a while all the sort of posts of lumber claiming to be millionaires. Uh, yeah, so lumber enters a bear market with prices down 20% for their peak per Fortune magazine two days ago. Wow. That's interesting. I wonder if that's a leading indicator indicator on the uh, housing bubble popping in the US. I have no idea. Maybe. I mean, it seems like everyone who possibly could have wanted to move or refinance must have done it by now. Yeah, but there's not a lot of building. I mean, here's just a ton of building. People, you know, didn't really know what to do last year. Now it's like, okay, let's move, let's build, let's renovate, let's do some stuff for our home, which, because we can't travel. It's not happening like that? So it depends on where you are, right? So uh, the influx states like Florida and Texas, uh, absolutely. Tons yeah. of building, you yeah. know, Californication, basically people moving. Uh, and I, from what I gather anecdotally, that's not always welcome. So if you show up in a Texas suburb with a California license plate, <laughs> you know, you might want to get a new license plate sooner rather than later. Um, heard the same. Yeah, but we're, you know we live in a fairly densely populated part of the East Coast, so there's just not as much land. Uh, but I think my guess on this, and 
you know, the reference point for me was, and this is different, but after 9-11, Lower Manhattan was a ghost town. No one wanted to live there. Very few businesses. There was a lot of rebuilding to be done. Mm. People who were graduating from college around the time I was and some of my cohort moved to Lower Manhattan because it was so cheap. And so, you know, folks that may not have been able to live in Manhattan and might have lived in the boroughs uh, opted for Lower Manhattan because suddenly they were priced in. Yeah. Uh, and then over time, you know, that cohort stays there and businesses come in. And if you know anyone who's been to Lower Manhattan in the last five years will tell you it, it's fantastic down there. Um, and there's tons of new businesses, lots of shopping, right, retail, et cetera. Uh, you would really actually never know, you know, 20 years ago uh, what it looked like. So I, I kind of think that there's an exodus of people our age, right, who are in the family yard, yeah. school district type of time of life. And they were maybe catalyzed to move out of the cities a little sooner. Uh, but they probably were going to anyway. And then rents come down, transaction prices come down, uh, new generation of people that are younger graduate from school and they're attracted based on the you know, availability of um, space at a lower price. And then you see kind of, I don't think cities are dead, for instance, and I don't think the Texas suburbs are, are the new hub of the country. I just think it's kind of a kind of generational mini cycle effect, I guess. Yeah, that's very true. That's been, it's very fair. Speaking very much in my own sort of tunnel vision with that, uh, with that point. And anyway, it's probably, it was, it, well, not probably, it definitely was time where I was thinking about making some of those moves away from cities anyway. So, uh, I, I totally get, I totally agree, but it's funny. I mean, um, there's this one guy, he's a, he's an anarcho-capitalist. Interesting. His name's Michael Malice. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, uh, mm. he's a Ukrainian American, uh, very hardcore, like libertarian type. Um, he wrote this book called Dear Reader, which I definitely recommend all listeners to read. It's basically, uh, it's, it's, it's written in jest, but it's showing this the horrid uh, propaganda and just the way that North Korea works. And he's, he's been in North Korea and like he's seen how it works and everything. But he knows it obviously being in, you know, being born in the Soviet Union, but lives in New York, has lived in New York for a long time lifelong New Yorker, uh, loved New York. And then I just heard recently that he's going to move to Texas as well. Like he doesn't even drive, <laughs> but, uh, definitely. And, and, and yeah, a little bit older than us, but you know, been around and, and, but I, I completely agree for every person like that, there probably is, you know, a young, keen and eager, you know, kid who, you know, had COVID or vaccinated or not healthy and ready to just get after it in New York and rebuild. So I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, it will, that place will come back strong. But there's plenty of people like him, um, whether you're in the free market sort of space or not, who are just, I think, very angry at what the authorities have done to that town. But Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and you see it in the mayoral race that's going on there now that's fairly contentious. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, I think it's really good that states are competing for population. Yeah. Right? So the Californians and the New Yorks need to recognize that you know, the wealthy aren't just going to live there because they always have. Uh, and, you know, they should consider that in their planning and, and how they tax and uh, invest in infrastructure and, you know, manage crime and all these things that are causing the exodus. Uh, so, yeah, this and this is this is playing out at the global level, too. Right. People, especially in our community of Bitcoiners, you know, they pick the country they live on based on the quality of life and based on the freedoms there and based on the economic opportunity and, and the tax code. 
So, you know, especially if you've been in Bitcoin a long time and you're someone who you maybe did very well there, uh, you have the ability to move somewhere where, you know, that tax code implication could be significant for you. Uh, so, yeah, I think that I think that competition is good. Yeah. And the U.S. setup really has shown to be resilient in this point. I mean, even as much as like the libertarians, the YouTubers, the vloggers, people are so angry and railing against what the government has done in the U.S. And it is bad in certain places. At least you have, we have as Americans, the right to move uh, around and, and, and choose competition at a state level, which is really, really important. I mean, for what's been happening in Canada, I mean, I got British friends here in Eastern Europe and like, of course, you know, they'd always just be railing and shitting on me for our just hilarious group of presidents all the way back to, you know, Bush, the Bush years. But um, they have definitely uh, seen that, that, that we have come out of this stronger than, than the Brits and Europe in general. I mean, it's just, it's there. The fluidity of, of travel and mobility in the US really, really is uh, amazing. And it's definitely something I think not to be taken for granted because it's, it's well, well outshining what's happening in Europe and, and Britain and even Canada. I mean, like, there's just like, there's, draconian, draconian things still going on in many of these places. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. So uh, not to make it totally US centric, but, uh, you know, no country on the planet has a greater privilege of printing money like the US does. Uh, and in part, it's because we export so many dollars. And so, you know, it, it allowed us to weather. And listen, everyone in the Bitcoin community is going to agree that maybe this is a short term stopgap that will play out as a long term harm. But at least in the immediate kind of COVID bounce back, uh, we were allowed to push more capital into the economy quicker than anyone else and absorb it uh, in a less impactful way than other countries who, you know, if they had printed a commensurate amount, probably would have had a disproportionate uh, impact on their inflationary, um, on the sort of the inflationary pressure that comes from that. So, and we do see that in the U.S., but I don't think it's proportionate to the amount of money that was printed. Uh, and so... Yeah, that's just a kind of a privilege of having the reserve currency status that uh, it, it probably gives us more wiggle room than other countries. That's probably a good point to uh, switch gears a little bit back to some of the crypto-centric or economic-centric points, uh, at least from my side today, because uh, one of the things I've been noticing is in the, in, the, in the press, the mainstream press is just like, the buzzword of inflation, which of course the central bank definition, an increase of prices, which is you know defined always by those central banks, uh, very arbitrarily in my view, that's back uh, a lot. It's like everyone, I think definitely people are seeing inflation um, and they have for years and years and in many places like hospitality and education, but it's sort of, you can't deny now with the stimulus checks and the way that all levels of money supplies are rising really all around the world. And we've shown this with the monetary base stuff as well. Hyperinflations are a risk. And it's interesting, you know, you never know. One of these things um, that Steve Hankey used to say, and I, I want to talk about him as well, because obviously Bitcoiners hate on a lot. We had him on the show a while back. He's obviously very, very hostile towards Bitcoin and to everything that it, it potentially could offer. Um, but one of the things that he used to say, which I completely agree with, is that no matter how much uh, you write about inflation, think about inflation, or even measure inflation, you never know when it will rear its ugly head, when it can happen. You just can't predict it. It's not predictable. 
And I completely agree with that. And it's funny too, because like I got into this whole economics, um, I don't know, free market, like risk averse, conservative gold, then Bitcoin space after the financial crisis in 2008. So I've been pretty like, I, I remember in 2008, I mean, having this debate with my buddies, like inflation, deflation, what's going to happen? Because obviously the monetary base at that time took just unprecedented moves. Um, with the first rounds of quantitative easing, like never in the history of finance or money had anything ever happened like that, except for like, you know, just hilarious crackpot stories like, you know, John Law in Scotland and France. But anyway, these were like really major moves and everyone was talking about it. And it never came, you know, like it, it did come, but like the way that, you know, the officials defined it, it never, never really came. But now, even the mainstream press is asking questions about it. You know, is it going to come back? When's it going to happen? And you're, you're finally seeing, I mean, I've been seeing a lot in the press. I was watching even some YouTube videos of some Iranian Americans, like Iran is one of the top floating 30, one of the top 30 floating currencies in the world. When I say floating, it means more floating than being pegged or currency boarded to the US dollar. And, you know, it's pretty rare when you see the CPI rate going above the base money rate and they've, they're about 30% year on year on base money increase. But now, uh, over the last year, since about October, I'm looking at their official rates, it's like 40%, 50%, depending on the month, year on year. So um, they are hyperinflating. It's happened in the last year. It's happening in other places as well. And obviously all the uncertainty around the world with COVID and everything. But, you know, inflation is one of these things like, I like measuring it. I look at the monetary base. I really like measuring it and trying to position yourself that way. But I don't know. It's a, it's a long-winded way of saying like I never trust what the mainstream media is saying on inflation or you know the business uh, news, all that stuff. I just think you know it's all bluster. But it is interesting to finally see uh, some of these countries um, you know starting. It's not a good thing, obviously, but they're finally hyperinflating, and no one can really ignore it. And that's where we are. It's, it's interesting to see that now, finally. I mean, I've been looking at it for, you know, 12, 13 years. And, you know, you're finally seeing some countries that are really, really suffering. So, yeah, well, obviously, it presents the opportunity for political instability, social unrest internally. Uh, but the way we saw it play out with Venezuela, right, is it presents the opportunity for uh, you know, someone like Putin to go show up on your shores with some, some ships and say, hey, we'll, we'll help bail you out, but send us all your gold. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's, uh, that's not good. And this, the unwanted effects that are secondary and tertiary from that kind of instability, I think, have long term cascading potential when it comes to the geopolitical stability of the world. So, I mean, I'd be interested to see if you think that Iran has the potential because they're so economically isolated and, and you know, to the extent that the U.S. still has a lot of ability to sanction, uh, they don't they don't have the same ability to come out of inflation that a country that isn't under sanctions would. Yeah, I mean the sanctions are absolutely affecting it. We're talking pre-show. You mentioned you know they have just had an election, like not looking better there. Regardless of what uh, the political relationship might be between these countries, like there really isn't a way of getting around at some point, like the economic law of supply and demand. And if you think that that's the way you're going to finance your deficits and problems with printing money, like, uh, you know, I mentioned obviously John Law in Scotland, but there, there's obviously, as, as you mentioned as well, recent examples, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Belarus, um, you know, Turkey as well is, is rising uh, these days. So I, I definitely think that's coming. And I think, yeah, countries like China and like Russia who are more adversarial to the US, but 
certainly invested and intertwined in these other economies like Iran. I think that's probably well known. They're definitely going to try to do some of these uh, these things like, yeah, give us your gold and uh, and then we'll help you out. And it's interesting because uh, there's really no there's no other way other than Bitcoin once you once you lose track of gold. And even now, I mean, Russia, yes, they have famously been buying a lot of gold. Well, just like in the last couple of years, they've been buying a lot of gold. But central banks on a whole, and even what they report on a whole is probably not true because they lease out the gold, which is another topic. And they still say that it's their asset and sits on their balance sheet like, like it's in a vault. But really, it's a receivable and it's sold into the market, never coming back, particularly in the United States' case, in Britain's case. Alan Greenspan has stated in financial services committee uh, meetings in front of Congress that central banks stand ready to lease gold should the price rise too high. So they, they want to try to counter the price of gold because that, that was before Bitcoin, the only way to counter inflation, like the only way that private markets could counter central bank activities other than the, the famous bond vigilantes who would short government bonds. But that really hasn't seemed to work because central banks are also buying a lot of bonds. And they remain the net largest buyer of bonds. But the uh, the gold uh, question is always has always been interesting. Um, but I think, really, from my reading of history, like since World War II, yeah, really since World War II, it's been highly concentrated the, the amount of gold in the United States. And then, yeah, maybe some of that has been sold out in the private market. Maybe Russia is buying some of it back, but it's not nearly as much as the central banks used to have. And I just can't really see that gold sort of hedge, I don't know, really taking off. I could be wrong. It, it, maybe, maybe people really, really flock to gold if, if we have like crazy hyperinflations around the world. But it doesn't quite seem that that's um, really happening. And precisely because it's hard to secure. Another great example from World War II, uh, where really I think it was in the 30s, just before World War II, was, uh, was Spain, Civil War Spain. They called upon the Soviets to protect their gold. And Stalin was just laughing his way all the way back to Moscow when the when they came in and they secretly like took Spain's gold in the midst of their civil war in the 30s. The gold wars are always a very interesting topic. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever. Hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. When you sign up, you won't regret it. Uh, Thanks again to Max, Roma, and everybody over at Hodl Hodl for the support. And uh, a reminder, they also organized the very well-run and fantastic Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin Conference every fall in Riga. So head on over to hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. Thanks again, and back to the show. This may be just bias, but do you think that given kind of the generational trends, that when millennials and Zoomers are in the position that, you know, the baby boomer generation is now where, you know, a lot of the high government posts and senior economists, et cetera, uh, are, are Zoomers and millennials, are they going to think of gold the way the previous generations have? Or are, are these going to be the first generations that see something like Bitcoin or very likely Bitcoin itself uh, as the preferred store of value? Yeah, it's a good question. I thought about that a lot as well with the base money exhibits that that I've been putting out. Because basically, very, very odd numbers. You got 30 trillion in fiat 
basic money. Central banks directly print. You got ten trillion in gold, um, and then you got you know anywhere from five hundred billion to a trillion in Bitcoin. It could be that Bitcoin goes up, and both uh, fiat and gold go down in dollar terms. It could be that Bitcoin goes up and the dollar goes up in dollar terms, but other fiat goes down. It could be that Bitcoin goes up, fiat goes up, and gold goes up in dollar terms because so much fiat is being printed around the world, but still the dollar still, as Michael Saylor was trying to uh, say on a Bitcoin, I think it was Bitcoin Magazine, that was Coindesk interview a couple of days ago. I watched it. Um, you know, he was saying, I, I don't quite buy this, but he was saying, you know, the US dollar is going to regain strength and remain the world currency of the world, but it's going to run on Bitcoin rails. Mm. I know what he's saying there, but um, maybe, maybe with, you know, with CBDCs or whatever, it could be that central banks, um, particularly the dollar. I mean, everybody knows that the dollar is, yes, the, the main reserve currency, contracted currency around the world. So it might be that it holds its value. Other currencies kind of drop, but still in dollar terms, gold and Bitcoin go up. What you have seen in the last 50 years is gold has gone up in dollar terms. Fiat has gone up in dollar terms, uh, even though the native units of each currency outside the dollar typically goes down, typically, not always. I mean, like Swiss francs is an example of one that doesn't, euro doesn't. But um, you know some of those currencies relatively hold their value with the dollar. But yeah, you've seen you've seen a lot of inflation. Now, of course, you've seen economic growth as well and population growth. And it's not like you know, as I always say, like ceteris paribus. If you have an increase in demand for that money, then prices won't rise. But the question is, when they just print too much to cover the deficits, that prices will rise. And that's that's really, as as Steve Hankey says, I think the the hard question to answer. But. Um, I wish I had an answer for that. I, I just like measuring it mostly <laughs> and seeing how it looks. But I think it could be any of those scenarios. I really do. I think it'd be any of those scenarios. Yeah. Well, at least we'll be on the front row getting to watch it play out. Since uh, Michelle couldn't join us today, we can talk maybe more economics and, and price and, and also, also some privacy stuff, which I guess he would like to be there for that. But still on the price and the, uh, the latest, I mean, obviously we're, we're trending down a little bit, which I think is totally normal based on where we were a year ago and where we were three months ago. Like this is just what Bitcoin does. It's, you can't expect an asset that's this, uh, that improves this much year over year to not also be volatile. But, um, you know, obviously not investment advice, but uh, are you feeling hands getting a little bit weak or you, you still have diamond hands when it comes to Bitcoin? <laughs> uh we have to bring Reddit into it. Yeah, so uh, it depends on what your investment thesis is. And so uh, what I have found, and this was my story too, is uh, I got interested in Bitcoin because we were using it for private payments at work. Uh, and so that was kind of my first exposure, which is probably not the most common. Most people don't come to it for, for utility. But I did, but uh, I made my first purchase of Bitcoin purely for speculative reasons. You know, I, we had been buying things, uh, transacting in it, buying services and goods, and you just couldn't help but notice the volatility. Uh, and so I bought some for speculative reasons. But what happened was, as soon as I had some skin in the game, I started learning about it. Uh, and so uh, when I learned about it, I put more in. Uh, and I found the arguments in favor of kind of the fundamental thesis of Bitcoin to be compelling. 
Uh, and not only that forced me to learn about things that I just wasn't aware of prior. And so, uh, you know, fast forward a few years and, you know, the volatility is interesting and I keep a Bitcoin chart open, you know, on my desktop during the day, but whether it's up or down doesn't really change my fundamental thesis, which is that we have some novel technology here that, you know, is basically proving out so far to change what the meaning of money is. And so that hasn't happened very many times in history. And most people who have lived on the planet don't get to live through a fundamental change in what money is. So, you know, obviously you had bartering to start with and people using seashells and stones, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, you fast forward through, you know, double entry accounting and, and uh, mercantilism and the money starts becoming extensible and, you know, all sorts of improvements in what money is, or arguably improvements, right? But clearly bearing out in the uh, proof that the economy of the world has grown exponentially as time has gone on and, and the changes and updates in money have been um, uh, essential to that. And so we get to kind of be here just by luck of birth date uh, for another potential change in what money is. And you know, part of that is triple entry accounting and part of it is the, uh, the fact that blockchain brings the ability to code money, that money has a scripting language uh, beneath it. And so that's kind of what's interesting to me. And yeah, I mean, I like it when price goes up. That's fantastic. But when it goes down, uh, that doesn't mean that my fundamental thesis has changed. And it also to me means that there's people that are not selling while it's going down or people that are buying while it's going down. And that those are new kind of fundamental believers that are being minted. And so after every wave, we've seen, you know, some people exit and they rage quit and they hate Bitcoin and, you know, they bought to bought the top and lost their shirt. And that's not good, right? I'm not encouraging uh, that we root for that. Right. But some people stay and start contributing. Uh, and with each round, we have more contributors and more people from legacy industries who bring their expertise. And we see it play out in the maturation of the space. So I think that cyclical kind of coming and going will continue for a while. Uh, but ultimately, it, it is part of how we're going to develop. So um, yeah, price go up, price go down. Uh, no worries. Keep buying. Yeah, love it, man. Perfect. What about you? Completely, no, completely agree. Completely concur. I have nothing more to add to that, really. I've, <laughs> I've uh, rambled on enough about gold in the past, and I think that gold is always, um, you know, an interesting hedge. But um, whether it's hedge or the technology or magic internet money, I mean, uh, triple entry accounting, you, you, you covered all bases there. I think it's, I totally agree. But let me add to that, right? So you said magic internet money, which is something that people will say as if it's some kind of slight to Bitcoin. Yeah. But yeah. let's just think about it. We have magic internet money now. So yeah, <laughs> I'd say that's pretty cool. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Bill Barheit a couple of years ago mm. and um, he's doing some interesting things with Abra. Obviously they have major, major plugged in players to the markets um, with their sort of crazy interest rates that they offer on stable coins. Uh, obviously it just shows that they're, they're plugged into the markets with what they're doing. The thing that I wanted to ask him about a couple of years ago, because he was he was at Netscape in the early days, was that 402 air. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I asked him about it. He, he was he was intrigued. He said he'd never been asked that question, and he's definitely around at the time. But but uh, but he wasn't really he wasn't he didn't really have a good answer on how that came about. I'm very curious about because obviously you know Andreessen and a lot of those early guys um, that basically started browsing. They were thinking about payments, so I think the 402 payment error 
for those that forgot or you know, remember, we have obviously the famous 404 A, which isn't so famous anymore, but you used to see that white page with the, the blue letters, black letters, couldn't page not found. Mm-hmm. 402 era was payment not found. They were definitely thinking about it. I would really love to know the backstory and what they were thinking with that. Um, it, would, it would be interesting, but yeah, it's here. It's finally here. And um, I don't think you're gonna get 402 p- payment errors with Bitcoin. You might get them with, uh-huh. with Dogecoin. What was that, what was that coin that uh, Cuban was, was trying to stake and then it went down like to zero from 60 to zero? Uh, who knows? I, I didn't even hear that story. <laughs> it <was> iron, <laughs> it was iron. It was this week. Cuban had just like the week before it said about how he was staking this iron stable coin and it was yielding him like 200% per year, but it will be volatile, this and that. And then people realized it was probably him that was staking like the majority of it. And um, it was whatever, some DeFi project. And mm-hmm. they basically, I don't know, ran on him. The uh, the price that was backing it went from like 60 to, to zero, basically the coin that was backing the stable coin, uh, complete run on the bank. And uh, he lost his shirt with that with that coin. I mean, obviously he can afford to lose it, but it was just kind of ironic. So yeah, you're going to get 402 payment errors with some of these coins at this time. Definitely caveat emptor, but uh Mm-hmm. Pretty sure you're not going to get that for Bitcoin uh, anytime soon. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is not a safe time for the ultra wealthy to be revealing their positions. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so you know, no one, no one wants to be on the other side of the Reddit mob trade. Um, mm. And so you know, I mean, Melvin Capital, right? That was the obvious, yeah. you know, GameStop. Story, but there were and there were a few other hedge funds involved there, um, but this it's just we're kind of there's a populist rage on the internet that is now coupled with you know Robin Hood and the ability to take that rage into you know position making, uh, and they found out that they can you know that there's some power there uh, and it's significant. And I'm curious how that will go in the future because um, I know there's some overlap between the. The Wall Street bets nebulous, obviously, idea and Bitcoin. I know there is some overlap. I mean, for sure there's overlap, but it doesn't seem, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of overlap there. Um, they're more like going against the big hedge funds, those guys, and like just, uh, you know, CNBC reporting on meme stocks and all this stuff. And like everybody's trying to demonize them. And, you know, but again, there is no one them. Like it's just, it's a nebulous group of people that come in, come out, maybe some sell, whatever. But, um, as it happens with every crisis, and surely we're going to have another bubble here. I believe in in Eastern Europe, at least, real estate's going crazy. No one has a job. <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic, and like you know, there's just there's going to be another credit bubble. Prices will fall again, and then as happens, you know, regulators will come in say market wasn't safe enough. We need to add more protections, more regulations, more draconian things. The market's going to take the blame and it's going to be bad and all this. But I'm very curious that time around, no doubt, no doubt. I'm actually curious who's going to take the blame more. Is it going to be Bitcoin or is it going to be this Wall Street bets crowd? (laughs) Because it seems to me the Wall Street bets crowd has more of the attention for regulators these days. Like they're hurting big funds enough that, you know, their regulator friends care about them more than Bitcoin right now. I don't know. You think I'm wrong on that? No, I think so. Also, uh, let's just assume that many people are lazy and it's easier to add to regulations that already exist. And so, you know, something, someone being tasked with coming up with novel ways to regulate magical internet money is a much harder job uh, than just saying, oh, we're going to fine tune 
you know, existing regulations to, right. you know, air quotes, protect retail, right? Um, yeah. And further limit access. I, that just, it seems likely that's how it play out. I mean, we see, you know, Bitcoin every day, someone is, someone from, you know, the legacy world of government or finance is somehow blaming Bitcoin for something. Um, and I don't think that it has the market cap to really take all the blame that it that is ascribed to it. Mm. Uh, and I guess, you know, I wanted to bring this up anyway, but uh, the Wall Street Journal had this article this week about uh, 40. So the claim was that 46% of Bitcoin transactions are criminal related or for or were for illegal activity between January 2009 and April 2017. So this is our article, Why Crime Could Kill Crypto by Justin Lahart and Telus Demos. So 46%, right? First of all, this uh, is based on a what they cite as a 2019 paper, which is actually a 2018 paper, uh, and is based on these uh, purported algorithms that these researchers from Australia came up with themselves and have somehow attributed this much of the Bitcoin volume to illicit activity. Uh, I, I mean, old data with kind of a sizzling catch story uh, that no one has ever done any analysis that came close to that amount of transaction volume attributing to illicit activity. And then there, the chart that they, they cite in the article is uh, sort of based on average ransomware payments by quarter, and it starts in 2019 and goes to 2021. So there's a dislocation between like the data sets that they're quoting. Exactly. Uh, and not to just kind of like unpack them in a negative way. I'm sure that, and I, I read excerpts from their article beyond the abstract. So uh, I did kind of try to give it a chance and they're not, um, they know something about Bitcoin and blockchain. They're, they're not novice to it, but the, the, to juxtapose it, the chain analysis folks, which, you know, I have my issues with blockchain surveillance. But they, you know, Chainalysis and Elliptic pretty much have the market cornered on data collection, aggregation, and forensics on the various chains that they monitor. Yeah. And so their estimates are currently, so 2019, 2.1% of all cryptocurrency transaction volume, or roughly 21 billion, uh, was attributed to crime. And then in 2020, it was 0.34%. Uh, or roughly 10 billion in transaction volume attributed to crime. So, I, I mean, the obvious example is we're not even close. I, I think that there's states in the United States that have more illicit fiat transactions than you know the entire global um, illicit transactions attributed to, to Bitcoin. And if you're saying that something is money, then part of it's going to be used for crime. Sorry, <laughs> you know, the US dollar and every other currency on the planet is also used for crime. Uh, the fact that something has a dual use or a utility that is negative does not make the underlying uh, sort of like, it doesn't make the item itself bad, right? It just means it has multiple uses. And so I, every time I see this kind of Bitcoin is crime thing, I get kind of irate. And so this one was particularly egregious in that 46% of Bitcoin is crime. I mean, that's on its face just sounds preposterous. 
That's a good point. Thanks for sending that article over. Uh, I read it as well. Uh, it's funny because the, I, I know this paper that, you, that you're talking about, these Australians. One of them is actually an Australian Latvian and uh, he was over here for a while. I don't know if he still is. I've, I've seen him speak at a, at a local university over here. Hmm, we should get him on. Yeah, not about this topic. But um, I have read and heard, uh, as you said, like plenty of rebuttals to that paper. And um, obviously, I mean, the, the, their own facts in the next article dispute it. And it, now it's back to the Wall Street Journal article, you know, from 46% to, you know, if you just look at the ransomware transactions, I mean, it's the same type of articles come again and again and again. And it, I think that they're only gonna get stronger, uh, actually. And, you know, KYC AML is ramping up. Um, I've seen it more over here in Europe uh, than I think probably Americans have seen. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes. Yeah, one of the things that I guess I wanted to talk about today, which is kind of in line with this stuff, is the bust, the big, uh, I don't even know what it was, man. What, what would you say? The drug bust? The Anom story? Yeah. Amazing tech bust by these, uh, these regulators and, and uh, enforcers, drug enforcement officials and whatever FBI related type agencies. I guess it was started out of Australia. There were a lot of interesting things that came out of that story. I was curious of your thoughts. Yeah. So uh, first of all, huge success, right? It was the FBI and, and um, their Australian counterparts that pulled this off and um, you know, massively successfully. And I saw there was a quote, I think they were quoting an FBI agent uh, on the activity. And so when they got started with it, they decided we have to make a real business that actually works. Uh, and that's why this was so effective, right? Is that they, there was a real product that actually, you know, had a, brought a solution to the market that they were trying to penetrate. Uh, and that's why it worked, right? It wasn't some, you know, flimsy storefront that no one b believed in. Yep. Um, but this just kind of back to the previous point about crime, right? So, uh, there are enforcement actions and you know investigative uh, leads that can be followed that don't require you know undermining people's ability to you know have access and liberty around their money, right? So just because Bitcoin enables crime doesn't mean that there aren't also investigations that unravel Bitcoin-related crimes, and this is a great example of that, right? Uh, and in fact, the, some of the reason that we know that there's criminal activity occurring on the Bitcoin blockchain is because it is transparent. Uh, and so there, there's certain advantages to it from a law enforcement standpoint that are not there in the U.S. dollar or any other fiat currency. Uh, but yeah, I mean, kudos to law enforcement. They were collecting on all sorts of criminal enterprises by, uh, and they, what, the, what happened was there was this previous iteration of a secure messaging app called Phantom Secure. Uh, and they busted that guy. I think he was Canadian. And so they busted him and flipped him and then uh, were able to launch, you know, Phantom Secure version two, which turned out to be called Anom, A-N-O-M. Uh, and then, you know, it became the kind of de rigueur in the <laughs> crime world to use that app. Uh, and so they were messaging all sorts of things, you know, without even bothering to, you know, be, um, to use code language or, or any kind of like obfuscation uh, in how they were sending messages around. And so tons of information was collected on crime syndicates. And I have no more information on this than anyone else, but the timing of the release of the Anom story and of the seizure of the part of the colonial pipeline hack Bitcoin uh, was interesting, right? Same week. And so we find out that somehow the FBI has seized a, a wallet that had, I think it was a good portion, you know, 
two thirds or more of the Bitcoin that was paid out in ransom for the colonial pipeline hack. Uh, and so, you know, of course, like some people speculated that somehow the FBI has cracked SHA-256 and, you know, owned that wallet, which is, of course, is ridiculous. But uh, what <laughs> is potentially the case is that they were monitoring this criminal enterprise that happened to be using a NOM and they were passing transaction information or a private key or something that led law enforcement to be able to seize this wallet. So, yeah, crime occurred. They used Bitcoin to transact. Investigation occurred. You know, criminal uh, funds interdicted. I don't see why we need to ban Bitcoin, right? That all the mechanisms that are there are still working as they should. What did you think about that, though? The the timing of that, and um... so yeah, this story, I, the way this story evolved was a little odd, right? So first of all, uh, when Colonial announced that they paid off the ransom, they also said that well, we didn't really need to because we restored everything from our backups, but we paid the ransom anyway, uh, and then. The criminal, it's what they call dark, dark trace, I'm blanking on the name of the, of the criminal group, right? But then the criminal group receives the uh, ransom and says, okay, we're disbanding. You know, we're done with crime now uh, after our most successful hack ever. And they pay off the, the, the ransomware developers. And we see that in the um, chain analysis. And I think it was actually Elliptic that did the analysis. So we see they paid off a portion of it to developers. And then, you know, two weeks later, somehow the rest of their coins are intercepted uh, by this sort of law enforcement coup. That sequence of events sounds odd to me. Um, and so who knows what happened in the background? But we do know that the money was seized and something happened in between that allowed the pipeline to turn back on uh, and the bad guys got caught. And, you know, maybe there'll be a postmortem in a couple of years or someone will write a book on it. But I'd love to hear a little more about what actually transpired. Yeah, getting some good journalism, some good forensic journalism on that one would be very, very, very interesting. But yeah, I think the broader point, more interesting point is um, trying to juxtapose these stories with the overall uh, activity of Bitcoin and the overall market cap of Bitcoin and then the overall activity of crime in the world. And uh yeah, it seems like the facade, the veneer, is really, really crumbling for a lot of uh, the legacy institutions that are claiming that they can protect us better or put um, a certain set of structures in place that allow us to be you know, more free and more safe when going back to just blaming it all on Bitcoin. Uh, I think we're going to see that for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's kind of just a boogeyman. Uh, and, you know, there's not nearly enough press given to all of the fundamental good things that come from cryptocurrency general and, and obviously Bitcoin specifically. Uh, and you know, anyone who has ever used Bitcoin to transact peer to peer or, you know, from uh, consumer to business and realize the incredible independence that comes with the extensibility of Bitcoin, just that right there is so incredibly novel, right? That at any day of the week, uh, whether it's a holiday or not, having no reliance on any banking system, you know, I can send you, Matthew, money. And in 20 minutes, you can confirm that it's been received with such high assurance that you, you can claim that, that those funds are yours and irrevocably yours as long as you manage your private keys correctly. Yeah. That's incredible. Incredible, with no rent seekers along the way. Well, so uh, you could argue a miner is a rent seeker, which I would 
argue is not really true. I think that there's just an economic transaction there. Sure. But, you know, they're for an extremely small fee, even when the fees are really high, right, compared to what you get, you know, whether it's $16 or $2 to send the transaction, you know, the fact that you can, with such high assurance, move money around the world, um, you know, without asking anyone's permission is so incredible. And I, I think we could spend an entire year just talking about that and not even get around to unpacking the impact. Totally agree, man. Totally agree. Anything else to cover in the news or anything on your mind in the Bitcoin world? You know, I, I think the the more that people are out there learning about what's going on, the better, right? How, how many people you know that have spent time and really learned about Bitcoin and come out of it thinking that it's vaporware or a scam? It's very few people, right? Very few people who really diligently learn about it come out of it thinking negatively of it. We're just seeing it again and again and again. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's every day it's bigger and bigger. More and more people ask about it. Uh, it's more and more on CNBC. Um, and I think, yeah, even in the darkest depths of some bear market, uh, you're still going to have new people that are turned on and can see, okay, there's actually some real value here that can help me, my family, whatever. And uh, yeah, it's just not, it's not all going to be in the U.S. It's not going to all be in Europe. It's, it's going to be around the world. So definitely agree. I've definitely seen that pattern uh, many times from, from people that uh, originally disparaged it, but eventually come around. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. And you know, you're a generation ahead of me, but uh, I've seen the same thing. And, um, you know, I'll just close with something I heard. I think it was Trace Mayer said this, and it was a while ago, but uh, he made the point that the only time in the Bible that Jesus ever acts violently is when he whips the money lenders for trying to enter temple at Passover. <laughs> and so Trace makes the point that Jesus probably would have been a Bitcoiner because <laughs> he was against the rent seekers. Oh, you know where I heard that actually as well is uh, Patrick Byrne brought that up on our oh, did he? show as well. And he was quoting Fernando's old professor who was against fractional reserve banking. Jesus Huerta de Soto is his name. And not to be confused with Hernando de Soto, who, uh, who Patrick Byrne was, maybe still is working with down in, in Latin America to do some, do some stuff with property rights and, and blockchain. But Fernando's professor in Spain made the same analogy, but made it with fractional reserve banking, saying that uh, oh, it must be that the, you know, those were some early, uh, yeah. early religious views against fractional reserve banking. But yeah, that's interesting about the Bitcoin one. I kind of forgot about that. Well, everyone wants to claim that Jesus was on their team, right? So the Mormons claim he was American. <laughs> the evangelicals claim he was white. Like, you know, go on down the list. Everyone tries to pull him on their team. So. I, I'm all for it. I think he was probably a Bitcoiner. Yeah. I think the more interesting thing is looking at who's a Philistine in the space. <laughs> that may give you uh, a true, true insight into the potential of this, uh, of this amazing technology is just, just follow those Philistines. And uh, whenever they say Bitcoin is dead, it's probably a good time to buy. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's not name call. So <laughs> we don't get in trouble, but I love it. We will at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get Michelle back and <laughs> he can name names. Cool, man. Well, uh, enjoy your weekend. <laughs> Thanks for, for stepping in for this. Cool. Good to just uh, just take stock a little bit. Yeah, likewise. Uh, great chatting as always, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good, man. Take care.